Okay, so now we're going to do a short introduction to the computation of standard errors for Alcar Foster measures. Again, this is one of the topics that uh, I have to confess that I feel a bit, a bit uneasy talking about this in front of a few statisticians because they will probably know this like bread and butter better than me. So of course, those of you, if, if you find something that is not correct, please correct me in a nice way, you know, mercifully, you know. I'm an economist. I like statistics, I love statistics, but I'm not a statistician, so I, I, I've been learning on my own a lot. Uh, it's not the same as, you know. Um, but also to motivate <coughs> this session, this is the first time we teach this session at our summer schools. And, um, well, the reason being was that, well, as you can imagine, when the Alcar Foster method came out first, some of the main, main concerns originally were actually to put out something there to start to generate momentum, to generate interest. So you needed some point estimates, you know, something, you know. And of course, a lot of the time was also dedicated to, to thinking very hard about the choices of dimensions, choices of weights, of poverty lines, which, you know, each in itself is a whole area. How do you choose weights? How do you choose the poverty lines? And even in each dimension, in uh, health, in education, in water, there are experts on each topic, right? So you can imagine the amount of challenges that, that, that it is like, you know, in, in practice to try to come up with an index, design the whole index, and then implement it in practice. It's not a piece of cake. Then it looks easy, but actually each step involves tons of decisions. So my point is that in that context, one of the issues that was at first um, not given the same priority, but again, not for any spe specific reason, just because, well, a bit of expertise, but also because there were other things that you needed to pull together first. But the one of the issues that was not given so much attention at the beginning was the standard errors, the, 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 the confidence in general, and the accuracy, the precision of the estimates of these measures. But of course, the moment these numbers came out, people started to wonder. In the same vein that people ask, what about if we change the way it's do the rankings change? They were also asking, okay, so I see that, um, I don't know, that um, China is above uh, Laos, you know? In, uh, you know sorry, uh, Laos has more poverty than China. But are these differences statistically significant? You know? If we were to to compute, I don't know, a 95% confidence interval around them. How much would they overlap, right? So these were also questions, fair enough questions that also came out. So we had an interest at some point of, you know, computing uh, standard errors. Because, you know, with standard errors, I mean, we're talking about classical statistical inference, with standard errors, you can do two things. You can uh, construct confidence intervals under certain assumptions, of course, as usual. But also, you can conduct tests, right? Statistical inference. So what we're going to do now is I'm going to mention some things about the computation of standard errors. It's not going to be a thorough, exhaustive examination of how to do this, OK? In the reading list that I gave you, I, I refer you to, to, to some good texts that you can find. But there are many more texts. Um, and of course, f f you know, from the beginning, my apologies to those of you who will see this and will, you know, will remember that you saw this in the second week of Statistics 101. <laughs> you know, um, like many of us, we, you know, in social science, uh, we have to learn this, we have to do this, but it's not our, you know, you know, for many of us, it's not our expertise. Um, 
So I just wanted to show you if I brought it. Um, oh yes, I did. This is, I don't know if you, any of you know this book. Some of you do, right? The Analysis of Household Surveys, a Microeconometric Approach to Development Policy by Angus Deaton. This is like uh, the Bible for many applied researchers in, in economics and other social sciences. Social sciences, huh? that statisticians have their own Bibles. And, and there are many others, but this one is a very good recommendation for those who want to review this, this, um, this topic. Because what Angus Deaton did in the 1990s, in this book commissioned by the World Bank, was he went through uh, statistical handbooks and textbooks on standard error sampling, um, uh, you know, uh, statistical inference with complex surveys, and um, and he produced this book. So it's, it's a conflation of, uh, you know, it's the greatest hits of, of this area, okay? And by Angus Deaton, who very very good economist. But I also give you some other references. Uh, there is also like a, a book that I'm referencing also. It's a statistical book. Okay. Sorry? Of the author. Yeah. Angus? Angus, like Aberdeen Angus, like Angus, A N G U S, and Deaton, D E A T O N. By the way, remember that name because I think he may win the Nobel Prize in the next 10, 20 years. <laughs> I'm putting money, putting money on it. <laughs> Angus Deaton, big, big guy. He's a, he's a, he, he was until recently the president of the American Economic Association. I'm not sure if he still is, but he, but, uh, he was until a few months ago. Anyway, big, big guy. So, um, okay, so what we're going to do today here is, basically I'm going to discuss very briefly, as I said, a, a bit informally, I'm going to discuss the computation of the standard errors for Eichler-Foster measures, okay? So we have basically, um, there are basically um, a couple of issues. I'm just going to give you an introduction and then we will go through the slides. The first issue is that there are two ways we can compute standard errors, okay, with complex surveys, okay. One way is uh, what I would call analytically, we can derive them, we can derive the formulas, okay. And a second way is, well, it also involves formulas, but a second way is with resampling techniques like bootstrapping, jackknife, and there's a huge literature on that, okay? So there are different ways, and some of the references that I give you, they discuss bootstrapping, in some others, uh, it's more analytical, okay? Meaning that you derive the asymptotic theory or sampling theory, you, de you derive the formulas. Now, uh, there's another aspect which is that um, usually um, there is a difference between computing the standard error for statistics like averages, like sample averages that try to be estimates of population averages. Those usually have very straightforward formulas, very, very straightforward. And then there are other statistics which are usually, for instance, ratios of averages. And, and these are a bit more complicated because usually it's a ratio of, we have a ratio of two random variables, right? And then usually we need, for instance, we may need, if we want to do it analytically, we may have to use an approximation, like a first order Taylor expansion, okay? Again, maybe for some of you, you've seen this uh, in the f your first year of BA, and it's gonna be very easy. And for some others, 
like me uh, and until recently it's going to be like oh i did oh i didn't know you could do that with the first taylor first order taylor expansion right for some others it will be new i don't know so i'm going to show some of those bits okay now this this type of statistics are relevant in the alcar foster world for several reasons or or they're relevant they crop up in in, in several instances for instance the statistics the statistic a the average number of deprivation of the poor it is a ratio M0 divided by H. There you go. There you have a situation in which you may want to do an approximation. If you go the analytical way, otherwise you can bootstrap or do other things, right? Um, another case is, for instance, you want to compute a standard error of a percentage change. The percentage change is also a ratio. The final quantity divided by the initial quantity, well, minus one, but then of course, when you compute the standard deviation of that, the minus one goes away. Okay, so this is a bit the, the landscape that we are in, okay? So, um, okay, so, I will, so I, I, will sh I will take you through there, so we will see some bits and pieces, but it's not complete, it's just an introduction, so then when you, when you see some of the texts, you, you'll be more at ease. Something else I need to mention is that in the world of computing standard errors, there are usually two approaches. One is called, I don't know if you're familiarized with it, superpopulation approach. And then there is the finite population approach. So this presentation is going to be based mostly on the superpopulation approach. And then in, at the end, we're going to uh, give some comments regarding the finite population approach to the computation of standard errors. In practice, with most uh, household surveys, the estimates that you will get in either approach are very similar. Okay? They are very, very similar. You can see with the formulas that the, the estimates are... Oh, that's a strange thing. It's okay. It's a funny sound. Okay. So, um, so I'll, I'll see at, at what point it, it, it is actually worth... Okay, in a few slides, uh, uh, worth talking a bit more about the superpopulation approach. Okay. So um, we talk about this. So this is what we're going to do in the lecture. Um, we'll quickly review how we compute a standard error in the case of a simple random sample. Um, depending on how acquainted you are with this, we'll probably go quickly through, through this bit. I will use the example of H, the multidimensional headcount. So then you can already relate it to, to the topics we are dealing with here. Then we will study how we can derive asymptotic standard errors using uh, A as an example. And I mean asymptotic because we need an uh, approximation, an expansion, because it's not a typical average. Right? It's a ratio of two random variables. Okay? Um, then we will also look at how to derive asymptotic standard errors for percentage changes for cross-section and panel data sets. <coughs> These two are different because in a panel data set, the information from the two periods, the data, are associated. It comes from the same people. Whereas in cross-sections, no. Therefore, the covariances can be safely ignored. Right? Um, and, then, and then we will briefly discuss computation of standard errors when we have more complex surveys. Okay? I mean, the, the formulas that we will see here in this two, the second and third point, are also relevant in the case of complex surveys. Um, 
And we will discuss a bit more what entails to compute these things in complex surveys. Introductory, uh, not, we are not experts in, in sampling design here. But it's important that you are aware because in real life, most of the surveys you're going to deal with are complex surveys. The typical one in household surveys is the, what is called the stratified two-stage clustered survey, right? But there are other, there are multi-stage, or even on the other extreme, if, if any of you has ever had to deal with the EU Silk data set, you will notice that some of the European countries have simple surveys. Simple, believe it or not, simple random surveys. So there's, there are two extremes. There are, but the majority are somewhere in the middle, two-stage, stratified, okay, and so forth. Okay, good. So um, how many of you are, you see more equations, how many of you are familiarized with the concept of standard error? Do we need to define it or are you aware of it? Yeah. How many would like me to say something to make a statement about standard error? Okay. Well, but please, the statistician, correct me if, 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 I, if, I, if I messed up in the definition. But one way to look at it is the standard error, in a, in a, in a, in a sense, is, is a standard deviation. It's a standard deviation usually of, um, well, it can be of many things, but usually it's, it's talked about in the context uh, of, of, uh, of a sample average that tries, to, um, that tries to be an estimate of a population average. And the idea being, imagine that you... <coughs> You know, you want to estimate a population average and you draw a sample from the population, right? And a sample, this is important detail, a sample of a special size, uh, of, of one special size. You choose a size like, I don't know, a thousand observations. You, you take the, the sample, you compute an average, right? But of course, I mean, in principle, the, the, the typical question is how, how do I know that this is a precise estimate or a good estimate of the population average, right? And you can always, ideally, hypothetically, you could draw another sample of the same size and compute a different average. So imagine you do that many, many times. You could actually construct an empirical distribution of all the averages that you computed, each from each draw, right? So in a sense, if you were to compute the standard deviation of that empirical distribution, that would be the standard error. But of course, we don't do that, really. What we do is, uh, for instance, in the superpopulation approach, what we do is, under certain assumptions, this is the superpopulation approach, the finite population works differently, but I, I know better the superpopulation because that's how in, we, we are taught. In the superpopulation approach, certain assumptions about how the data behave, especially in large samples, but in general, allow you, even from one draw, from one draw, allow you to compute what would be the standard error, or the, the st that standard deviation of that hypothetical distribution uh, that, that you would get from, from sampling many times, okay? And an important detail in, in the standard error of, of averages is that the larger your sample sizes, the smaller the standard errors will be. This is something that you will see the moment you see the, the formula in a simple case. It's very easy to tell, but it has an intuitive appeal too which is that the more information you have from the population, the more precise your estimates would be, right? In the final population approach, this is even more explicit because in the final population approach, the standard error will depend, as we will show in the end, will depend on the relationship between the size of the sample and the size of your population, okay? 
But there is an important distinction between the two approaches, that is, which is the following, that in the finite population approach, when you have a census, when you sample the whole population and you compute the average, the, the approach says, that's it, that's the average. There is no standard error, zero. That's it, that's what you compute it. That's what you have, okay? Whereas in the superpopulation approach, it's a bit more philosophical, more kind of uh, twilight zone, more, I don't know. Which is basically that even if you have the whole census, you do not uh, take in, you, you, you never take into account the population, the, the, the number of the population. The census is, is, is as, if, as if it were one sample, as if you could resample the world in a sense. Okay, so you still get a standard error, even though that's it, that's your population. So I mean, you, you will see that in the formulas. Um, but of course, if I said something that is not explicitly correct, please uh, let me know. Okay, so let's let's then quickly review how we would compute the standard error of H, right, for a simple random sample. And as I said, we are thinking in terms of the superpopulation approach. So we're going to make assumptions about the distribution and so forth, okay? So this is H. This is one way we can write H. H is an average. It's an average of a variable, Yn. It's a sample average of, this n is in the size of the sample, okay, of ones and zeros, isn't it? Right? Some people get a 1, some people get a 0. You are poor, you are non-poor. And this yn, this thing that I call yn, is actually this indicator function. So it's a 1 or a 0. What's in the parentheses? We have the famous cn. We have the weighted sum of the privations. And it's being compared against the k cutoff. Right? If what is in parentheses is true, we get a 1. If it's false, we get a 0. If it's true, the person is poor. If it's false, the person is not poor, right? Okay, so this is a crucial assumption. We are going to assume that the observations are independently and identically distributed. It's a big assumption that it's going to be violated, for instance, when we have complex surveys. But this is like the first step, okay? This is to, to fix ideas about standard error, okay? They're independently and identically distributed. So then, for instance, we can take the expected value of the sample uh, estimation of, of the uh, multidimensional headcount, the headcount, let's call it. And if you remember the, the formula of an expected value, remember, is the integral of x times fx times dx, right? Expected value. Well, all the possible values, that, that is a theoretical concept, right? But then we, if we apply to here, you know, uh, by the expectation operator with the integral and blah, 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 the expectation operator can enter here. And then we will get this h with a funny, the calligraphic h. Let's call it calligraphic h. And this calligraphic h is the population's uh, real, the population average for h, okay? Which comes from this identical distribution that all the yn's have. They're independent, right? Okay. So here's the expected value of h, okay? Okay, so then the standard error of, of a random variable, like this average, is going to be the sample estimation of its population standard deviation. But what is the standard deviation of h? Okay, well, let's look at the variance, the population variance. So the population variance, okay, this superpopulation variance in a sense, another funny sounding cell phone, is the expected value of, of h, Right. Minus the um, sorry, expected value of the difference between the h that we will get in each sample minus 
the population sample of H, which is the calligraphic H. And this is interesting because here, if, 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 you, if you compute this, you know, if you open this up, it's not difficult, you will get this crucial formula. You will get this standard, sorry, this variance I divided by the sample size. Okay? And uh, this variance I is the, the population variance of the YNs. Okay? Okay? So this variance I comes from, is, is the variance of the distribution from which each of the observations are coming. Each of the observations, each of the households, if you want, or the units, come from some unknown distribution that is identical. It's assumed identical. It's an assumption. Okay? And it has this variance, okay? But then this is the this is the variance, the population variance of H. Remember, there's a this is this is where I, I used to get a lot of confused when I studied this, but a long time ago. It's very easy to get confused between YN and H. H is a sample average of YNs. Okay? So what will be the variance of H is different from the variance of the YNs. But one is a function of the other, which is right here. The variance of H is a function of the variance of the YNs. Okay, is that clearer? Yeah? But look at this crucial detail. It's divided by the sample size, right? And this is what I was telling you at the beginning, that the, the, the bigger the sample size, the smaller the standard error is going to be, in both approaches, actually. Okay, and it makes sense, okay? Because you have more information, you should be more precise, the estimate. Okay, so now you have to, we have to compute the sample variance of H. So in order to do that, first we replace the population variance of I, of the YNs, with the sample estimator. And this is a sample estimator, a consistent sample estimator of the variance of the YNs. Okay? Um, interestingly, I mean, when, when, when I was told this a long time ago, in, um, usually they would divide by N, but then I realized in textbooks that actually it should be divided by N minus 1, because then it becomes unbiased, and there's a lot of properties that it fulfills when you divide by n minus 1. But when you're dealing with huge sample sizes divided by n or by n minus 1, really won't make much of a difference. And interestingly, if you divide this by n here, you will actually get this formula, h times 1 minus h, which is very similar to the, uh, to the variances of uh, uh, probabilities. Uh, binomial, Bernoulli, I forgot exactly, but you know. So it's similar to the formula P times 1 minus P, which is typical in the estimation of variances of probabilities, and multinomial distribution and so forth. Okay, so the sample variance of H is going to be simply the sample variance of the YNs divided by N. Okay, and then when we take the square root of that, we get the standard deviation, which is called the standard error. Okay? That's like, that's the basic, right? Probably half of you or more already knew this or, or managed to relate it very easily and hopefully, right? Yes? Yes, the standard error. Very simple. You may re re remember your statistic lectures from your BA. And for, uh, of course, the statisticians may be thinking, oh my word, you know, like I saw this, you know, so many times, so long ago, it's so bread and butter. But anyway, okay. It's an heterogeneous class, so we have to, you know, give a bit to everything. Okay, so, but is it clear? Again, the logic is, the logic that will appear usually is that the standard error of these sample averages, sorry, is going to be the square root 
of a variance that basically has the sample equivalent of the variance of the yn's or of the units, right, divided by n. Okay, that's the logic. That's how the structure works most of the time. Okay, but now, as I said, and then you can do this, by the way, you can do this with m0, m alpha. Okay, you can repeat this with any average. Any average works the same way. Okay, under <coughs> the mentioned assumptions. But interestingly, in the final population approach, which does not make these assumptions, the formulas turn out very similar, just with some minor corrections. Okay. So far, so good, right? Okay. But now let's let's go to something a bit more complicated, just a bit more complicated. Um, okay, I mentioned this, and of course, in Stata, by the way, or or well, there are of course twenty other statistical packages, but in Stata, um, you it's very easy to compute the standard error. You just need to generate the yn, say in the case of h it will be a 1 or a 0, but if in case of m0 it will be something a bit more complicated, and then you just ask to summarize, right? In a simple random sample. In a simple random sample. We're starting with simple random samples, so we will complicate things as we go along, okay? So this is really trivial in Stata, really easy, really straightforward. However, this procedure cannot really be implemented when we have ratios of random variables as opposed to averages based on sums. Okay. Um, for one thing, you ca we cannot pass the expectator, um, the, ex the expected operator through the ratio the way we do through the average sum. So okay, so we cannot do that. But in the a in the Alcar-Foster family, we have ratios like A, and then for for this, we can use asymptotic standard errors. So here, basically, on this formula, you can see how A is a ratio of averages, right? This, the, the numerator is M0, and the denominator is H, OK? So it's a ratio of two sample averages, one and zeros, OK? So one way to do this is to approximate A with the first order Taylor expansions around the population ratio M0, calligraphic M and calligraphic H. Calligraphic M0 plays the same role that calligraphic H plays, but instead of being for sample H, it's for sample M0. Okay? It's the same thing. And then this expansion is a linear function of random variables for which we can compute standard errors. So I don't know how many of you have ever done a first order Taylor expansion in your lives? How many of you ever? You did? You did? Okay, so you, you, know, uh, you know how this works, right? Um, Basically, um, <coughs> what you have to do is you, um, you take the total derivative, right? The total derivative of a function, and it's evaluated at a certain point. So this, um, the right-hand side is the total derivative of A, right? Total derivative of A multiplied by changes in, uh, in M0 and in H. These are the changes here and here. Change in the same that there is, we assume that there's a departure between the sample average and the population uh, parameter, right? And of course, when, when, when the sample average is equal to the population average on both sides, then both sides become equal, and of course, that's, that's precise. But in a sense, what we do here is we linearize. What we're doing is we're transforming the ratio into a linear combination of, of statistics, which are themselves averages. And so for these, we already we know how to compute the standard deviations 
and the um, yeah and the, and the standard errors. So in, in, in a sense, what we're doing is we're saying these two amounts, these two statistics, the one on the left side and the one on the right side, are very similar. And if you do this in Excel, very simple, with very simple values, you will realize that when these distances, this distance and this distance, are very small, the two sides are almost perfectly equal. It's, it's incredible how good the approximation is. And the whole point is that unlike on the left-hand si side, on the right-hand side, we can apply expectation operators. We can try to compute the variance, uh, or the population and the sample variance of this. Because it's linear. It's all linear. We can compute covariances, right? And everything. Okay, so that's the logic. Whereas on the left side we couldn't, now on the right side we can. Okay, that's what this linearization does. Okay, that's the logic. Um, so if you actually compute the sample covariance of the right-hand side uh, of the expression for A, you get this result. Okay, this is already with, with, with a bar, so it's a sample covariance. So this is ready to, like pret-a-porter, you know, this is ready to be estimated, okay? So this, this is a sample variance, okay? Uh, and I will explain in a second, but this H squared, this M0, this H squared, M0, H cubed, in practice, they are estimated, they are consistently estimated with the sample values. So in other words, when you want to compute the sample, the asymptotic sample, uh, well, variance of A, you have to replace this M0, this H, with the actual values that you compute, okay? Um, and then, of course, you need to find formula, there are, for, um, sorry, we need to explain what sigma, uh, square zero is, sigma square h is, and sigma zero h. Sigma square zero is the uh, sample, co uh, sample variance of m zero. Sigma bar, uh, yeah, sigma bar square h is a sample variance of h. And then sigma bar zero h is a sample covariance of m zero and h. Okay? So that's exactly what we have. So, um, we compute the sample, right, so, sorry, yeah, but it, divided by the respective ends. Huh? So actually, okay, so sigma bar square zero is this formula, right? But, but sorry, but divided, when you divide sigma, when you divide sigma bar square zero by n, you get the sample variance of m0, because m0 is an average. Okay, so sigma bar square zero, in a sense, is the variance of another, uh, is, 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 is another variable like yn, like we showed before, but in this case yn is equal to the indicator function times cn, okay? So it's very similar to what we saw for h. It's the same idea, okay? And, um, and this, 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 this uh, covariance, zero h, can be very safely approximated by, by these statistics, m0 times 1 minus h. By the way, some of these formulas with more explanation you can find in a note that I wrote that it's on the OFI website, but I have to, have to do a few corrections, so this should be available soon after the summer school too. So even if you wanna go back to it, it's with more detailed explanation. This is just compressed because of uh, lack of time, okay? But in a sense, what I'm trying to say is The asymptotic, the sample asymptotic uh, variance of A is going to be a, uh, a sum, and, and the elements include 
sigma bar square zero divided by n, this is the sample variance of m0. Sigma bar square h divided by n, this is, as we saw before, the sample variance of h. And sigma bar zero h divided by n, that's the sample covariance of m0 and h. Okay? And this is what we have to put in the formulas. For h, we know it from above. It's, that's why I'm not writing it again. And finally, you take the square root of that, and that's it. Okay? So um, again, for some people, this is obviously very straightforward. For others who pro probably have never seen this before, the important message to take here is that next time you're going to compute these indices, you can also do the standard errors. Okay? There are formulas. It's really not that difficult once you find your way around it. Okay? And this is the, an the analytical approach. There is also the bootstrap approach, the resampling approach. Huh? So there are more than there is one more than one option that most of the community will accept as uh, valid. Okay? They will give you the right approach. Okay. So now let's um, quickly have a look at percentage changes. It's a similar logic. The important message to get from this part is that there will be a difference in terms of whether you are computing these things for uh, cross-sections as opposed to panel data set, okay? because the covariances will change. And then, um, and then after I show you this, um, we will discuss a bit complex surveys. <coughs> uh, bless you. I will, I will show you uh, an empirical application that I did yesterday very quick with a data set. Also for you to be aware of, of the important consequences of computing standard errors, uh, paying attention to the sample design. What, what happens when you have a, you know, a stratify cluster the sample design and you treat it as a simple random survey? <laughs> so I'll show you an example. I did the experiment actually yesterday night and, and actually came out uh, very interestingly, the way I was expecting. But anyway, okay. So a percentage change, let's say in the case of H, again includes the ratio of two averages and of two random variables. So again, we cannot pass the expectator operator through here, the integrals. So we cannot really readily use the assumptions the way we use them for h, okay? So we have h, h computed in time t divided by h computed in time t minus a, and i is some lag, you know, some time period. So t minus a is before. Similar approach to a required, so I'm doing the same first order Taylor expansion. But now I have mt and mt minus a, you know, with respect to their population values, right? Again, this is the right with a simple quotient rule. That's why you have these ratios, okay? But as I said, the important thing to get here, because otherwise it's similar to what we just saw a few minutes ago, is that there will be an important difference in terms of whether we compute this for cross-section and for panel data, okay? In the case of cross-section, we're using actually two data sets, right? The first period, the second period, with different households, different units, okay? Different sample sizes, even. Only by a flux, they would be the same, right? So the asymptotic variance is a sum of the two time-specific variances. It's a weighted sum. Notice there is no covariance, and there shouldn't be, because these are independent samples. There is no, they're not supposed to be, how would you compute a covariance anyway? You cannot even relate the households. These are different households in identity and different numbers. So straightforward, you can see there is no covariance. This element here is the variance of, of uh, this is m alpha actually, it's not even m0, m alpha is the variance of m alpha in period t 
And the other one, the analog, imperial t minus 1. Then the standard error, just take the square root of that, and that's it. And of course, it is important to be careful with these weights, because these weights are important. They come from the first order Taylor expansion, right? OK, what about panel data? OK, panel data, it's a bit trickier on one hand, because now we have a covariance. But on the other one, it's simpler in the sense that we have the same n. It's the same people. It's the same households. But we computed their m alpha in period t minus a. And then we, we found them again, and we computed m alpha in period t. Okay? So this, this is going to be sigma bar squared alpha t divided by n is the variance of m alpha in period t. We'll have the same thing here for t minus a. And then the, the, the final element, we're going to have a covariance. Okay, this is a covariance of m alpha period t and covariance of m alpha and sorry n m alpha in period t minus a. So the only thing we need, because we know the other formulas, is just simply the formula for the um, for the numerator for the numerator of the covariance of m alpha t and m alpha t minus one minus a, minus a. And this is the the formula basically of the, of that covariance. Okay. It looks like a typical formula of a covariance, right? You have the, the two averages here, and then the, the sum of the, of, of the multiplication of the two yn's, the yn in period t and the yn in period t minus a. Okay? So you can see that one of the, the yn in period t minus a is this bit multiplied by this bit. And the, y, the yn, the little yn that we, you know, the equivalent. In period t will be i t multiplied by this, but I just I, I just shuffled them a bit because of the way it was. Okay, so it follows the same logic that we used in simple random designs to compute um, um, variances and covariances of the y n's. Remember that then in order to get the ones of the h and all that and m zero, we need to divide that by n. Okay, but this is of the y, of the y n's. Okay. And then the standard error is the square root of the left-hand side here. Of, well, it's the same thing, of this, OK? But it's asymptotic, OK? OK. So that was it. That's as far as we're going to go with formulas here. So again, as I said, no, no, not much more to do, because this is illustrative. Um, there are tons of good textbooks, and even, even many times the manuals of the household surveys themselves will guide you through this, will tell you how they computed them, and they will tell you how, how they suggest you to do it. Okay? So we're not going to do much about this, but Sabina still wanted me. I think her idea was, because the, the important thing is to convey that this should be done and can be done. It's not that difficult. Okay? It's just that you have to do your homework. You have to learn the formulas. Right? But, uh, but this is a bit the logic. Okay? Now we're going to talk about standard errors with complex surveys. Okay? I mentioned something about this at the beginning, that there are different types of surveys. I found in my own experience from the extreme of simple random surveys, like in the case of, I think, Austria and one or two other countries in the EU silk, to, uh, to surveys that are really, really complicated. Uh, I mean, I, I guess it was justified, but they really went a long way to, to construct these things and make them quite difficult. So, the important point here is that when we compute standard errors, uh, uh, errors, standard errors, the survey features, the characteristics of the surveys, the way the survey was designed, is very important and should be taken into account. And there are 
three important aspects of a complex survey that needs to be taken into account. Uh, these are the strata, the clusters, and the sampling weights. But in general, um, I mean, this is, this is a bit simple, but I mean, in general, we should say the strata, uh, what, what they are called the sampling units, and the sampling weights. And um, I will give you an example uh, in order to introduce some definitions for these concepts, because I'm sure some of you know these concepts by heart. But I have a suspicion that not all of you do. Or, or are you all familiarized? Like if I ask you to define a stratum, could you, would you be happy to do it? Or shall, shall, I, shall I go through that? Shall I mention some, Shall I say something? But correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm going to give the most common, what I found to be the most common uh, understanding of strata. But I'm warning you that different people use this concept in different ways. But, and there's also post-stratification. Uh, these, these things can get as complicated as you want. I mean, I, I just want to think that it's justified, but I don't know. But basically, in my understanding, the strata are, in a sense, they are, they are like sub-samples of, of a population. When you construct your sample, you, you in a sense, you partition the sample, and you want to have sub-samples for which you want to make sure that you have uh, a a minimum good enough amount of observations. So in other words, when a, when, when, a, when, a, when a sample has strata, it means that each of the strata could be in itself its own sample. And usually the idea is that, um, for instance, I mean, as you saw before, the standard errors usually depend on the sample size. So if you want to have a, and, and, and that will affect the confidence intervals, the, the width of the interval. So if you want to, in a sense, make sure that uh, what is called the margins of error, sometimes like in polling, you know, are not too wide, right? Or, or you have a, a minimum precision, then usually uh, you uh, you define, you design the strata so that in a way, if you want to draw inferences about statistics computed from that strata, you can do that, and you do not even need the other observations. With that stratum, you could do a lot of computations. For instance, no surprise that the typical strata are going to be, for instance, regions of a country, or urban-rural, OK? It could be. In some applications, it could be gender. I mean, there, there, are, ugh, there are all sorts of applications. But the most typical ones, you, especially in household service, you will find are usually interactions or combinations of regions with urban-rural, for instance, OK? And the idea then is that if you want to compute the average level of education in the northern region of a country, and if the country was stratified by regions like north, south, east, and west, you can. Like the whole thing, the whole northern package is a survey in itself. It has a minimum, it's a good number of observations, you know? Okay. Then clusters, um, in many surveys, especially two stage surveys or one stage surveys, usually they're also called, you will see in the, uh, in some, like in the, in the Stata Help, uh, for instance, uh, they will also be called uh, primary sampling units. These are usually agglomerations of households, could be villages, okay? And these, these things populate the strata. So in each stratum, you will have clusters. And these are usually defined by census data, by, by, by some other, you need some other data, usually census. So you, you have all the population, you know, and, and you define clusters. And usually what you do, for instance, in, in, in uh, several stage uh, surveys, what you do is, because uh, if you had the money and everything, you would do another <laughs> census or every year a census, 
But because you cannot do that for whatever reason, financial, etc., or it's not even necessary, what you usually do is you draw clusters from every stratum, okay? Different numbers, okay? And then usually, for instance, when you have a two-stage stratified uh, survey, which is probably the most common, the second stage involves, because the first stage was actually drawing the clusters. You, you, you do not sample all the clusters, otherwise you're doing a census in a sense. But you, you, you sample some clusters. And then from each cluster, you have different households. So the second stage involves sampling some of those households, okay, in general. Okay? Of course, there are other stages or other details of how these things are done. There are entire books written about how to do survey design. It's a whole literature. I don't want to do, uh, I, I mean, I, I don't want to do lack of justice, you know, to, to this by, doing, by making this very compressed uh, summary. But this is a whole old rich literature on how to do samples, so surveys, how to sample, how to design surveys. So there are a lot of details, but most of social scientists usually are not aware of all the minutia. Well, for sure, theorists are <laughs> not aware. But you know, empiricists are more applied, usually know a bit more about this. Maybe some of you have had experience actually having to implement a survey on the field, and, and that gives you a lot of knowledge about how to do this in real life. But there's a lot of statistical theory also behind how you should define this, okay? It's very rich. We are not going through this. We are neither of us are experts. This is not a summer school on sampling theory or survey design, but uh, maybe there should be, or there are, but it's just we are not aware. We should be in different mailing lists. Um, and then, of course, another very important um, component of complex surveys are the sampling weights, which are usually inverse to the probability of being selected, okay? This is important because it, it affects the degree of representativeness, if we could say that, that each unit may have, okay? Okay, thank you. So um, the sampling weights are usually connected, uh, sometimes, they sometimes people even can connect them to the proportion that the strata have next to the total population. There are different ways to define them. But they are also important in the following sense. For instance, sometimes you may want to go to a household and uh, interview one person, okay? But there may be a problem if you have households, like one adult, households that have one adult, two adults, or three adults, because then the probability of being sampled depends on that. So in a sense, that's also a way in which sampling weights are adjusted to uh, reflect uh, the, the real contribution or, or the contribution of each observation sample to, to the whole. Okay? Now, uh, for a long time, and we're talking about decades and decades and decades of, of hard work, all the formulas that I mentioned and many other formulas have been adjusted. So there are formulas for many types of, uh, of survey designs, and, and you would hate me even more if we had to go through them. You would, you would, you know, if, if, if you don't like me already, like, it would be like, you know. But what I can tell you is that there are a lot of texts that show these formulas. If you want to see them, if you want to uh, inspect them, but in practice, this is good news for all of us, you don't need to even write them because most uh, decent statistical packages, including Stata, will do the whole thing for you. But it's good to know how to tinker with the commands, though, to know what to do, you know, because there are different styles even to, to produce the variances. But anyway, for, for social scientists, one reference, not the only one, one reference, one, one easy first reference is the one by Deaton that I mentioned. But also you are most welcome to check out online. I mean, I downloaded a few days ago a wonderful 
statistical handbook also on survey design. Um, but Deaton, you know, he, he kind of, you know, provided a public good for the world by, by reading through 20 textbooks and distilling, you know. So he has, you know, a very good discussion. In Stata, there is a very e relatively, a f fairly easy way to, to, con to compute all these standard errors. Uh, and I will, I will give you a more precise example in a second. But the two stages basically are very simple. First, you tell Stata the features of your survey. Meaning, imagine that your survey is two-stage um, uh, stratified. Two-stage meaning first you had the clusters and then you chose households. So then you will tell Stata, hey, I'll show you the syntax in a second. Stata, hey, by the way, the variables that denote the strata are called strata, whatever. The variable that denotes the clusters are cluster or PSU, primary sampling unit. And then because the second stage was household, the household ID is this one, boom. So you tell Stata what to do, and Stata says, oh, okay, I got it. And then Stata replies to you, it says, oh, this is your survey, these are your variables, and you can check whether it's the right thing. That's the first step. And then the second step is, then for instance, when you want, this is actually, this is wrong, huh? but anyway. Um, then when you want to compute, uh, for instance, averages or other statistics from your complex survey, once you told Stata what your survey is about, what are its characteristics, how to detect it, then you, your usual commands have to be preceded by this SVI uh, colon uh, expression, and then it goes, and then it flows, okay? This is for Stata. I mean, we all, in a sense, we kind of, in Ophi, got used to Stata, um, but um, uh, there are other good packages, so, uh, if it's a good package, it should have all this in its own version. If it doesn't, change the package. But um, <coughs> if you prefer to use SPSS or SAS or MATLAB or uh, some other good statistical package, then you will have to do your own homework and find out the equivalent to these commands. Um, R, I don't know, there are a lot of uh, good statistical packages. Okay, so for instance, this is what I just said, but with an example. So imagine we want to compute the standard error of age, and the variable identifying household as poor is called MD poor. Okay? So this MD poor takes two values, one or zero. Okay? So in the typical, I'm going to use one example because there are more examples. In the in the case of a stratified two-stage survey, first we take we have to tell status. I told you what variables indicate the clusters, the strata, and the weights. Okay, and of course, in my those of you of you who do Beamer know that this happened because I forgot to write the diagonal bar, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I did it yesterday. <laughs> okay, that's what happens. When you <laughs> okay, so this is the command. So usually, in the, in the typical Stata syntax, you have to put the name of the cluster here. This is a name that you have, name cluster. Then here, the probability weight. Uh, you have to write p weight equal, and then you put the name of your weights there, okay? And it has to be between these brackets, huh? This is how Stata likes it. And then you have to write the comma here. If you forget, it's not going to work. You have to write strata, parenthesis, and inside the parenthesis, you have to write the name of your strata. That's how it works. That's how it is. Okay, and then there comes there come these two bars. 
And then on the second stage, a household ID, OK? OK? So this is for the typical, this is most common, huh? case of two-stage stratified uh, sample, OK? But there are other cases. But the good news is that in, in, the, in the help in Stata, in the help menu, Stata gives a lot of, it's so difficult to confuse Stata with Strata. Sorry, that's why I'm like, Stata gives you several examples for different types of surveys. It gives you the actual command how you should do it. So I invite you to look at that, OK? So that's the best way. And of course, Stata has wonderful manuals. And maybe in, in your institute or your university or your government, maybe you have the Stata manuals in the library. And if you don't, you should demand them or, or your favorite software. OK. And then, of course, as I said, you can estimate the standard error of H using the command, for instance, the survey mean applied to the variable mdpool. So it looks like this, SFY colon mean, so we want to compute the average and the standard error of that average, obviously. And then poor, and then it will appear. It will appear, it's very similar to the summarized uh, output. Yes? Would that work the same for A? Ah, excellent question, very good. Um, well, A, the problem is that, uh, to begin with, remember that we, we started here with a variable that, that is for every double tax one zero. With A, you don't have that. But still, the question begs for an answer. Unless there's something wrong with my, with my rule of thumb asymptotic theory, um, what, what you would do is, in the asymptotic formulas where you have A, what you would do is you would replace the, you know, the variances and the covariances that you need in those formulas with the output that you would get from here. Right? That's what I think should work, hopefully. Yes, but, but yeah, but you cannot do it directly because to begin with, you don't have a one zero variable because it's a ratio of, of, of two of those. Makes that, does that make sense? It's a very good question. Does that make sense? Yeah, you have another question there? No. Oh, I thought you did this. Okay. Okay. We're nearing the end, actually, which is good. Okay, and this is an illustration. I thought that would be cool. I mean, I've seen that other statisticians do this. That's why I did it. I mean, I'm just copying uh, people who know this much better. This, what happens if a complex survey is assumed to be simple, random sampling? Ah, typical thing, right? Um, sometimes we do it because we don't know. Sometimes we do it because they don't know, <laughs> you know, or whatever. Okay, but it's, it's a big, so I'll, I'll explain to you what's the story behind this. This is a Nigerian DHS from 2008, okay? It has a lot of indicators of living standards, like uh, cooking fuel, um, quality of the floor, the toilets, uh, education of people, and so forth. He has 10, in, uh, I, I, I took 10 indicators, but there are, uh, okay, I'll show you. There are 10 indicators, and I computed multidimensional headcounts with, uh, there are poverty lines there, but forget about which ones I chose. I, I did not even choose them myself. My, my colleagues did for me, so they're very nice. Okay, and um, I did the following. I, I assume on, on this, you see on this column, I assume that we had a simple random sampling and computed age and the standard error. And then, and then I repeated the experiment, but I told Stata, because I do have the variables for the strata, for the clusters, the household ID. And I know it's a two-stage uh, stratified sample. So I told Stata, hey, wait a second. It's actually a two-stage stratified sample, and these are the details, OK? And I computed age for all the natural numbers of k from 1 to 10. But it turned out that for 10, which is the intersection approach, 
in Nigeria in that year, uh, there was no, nobody was poor. So that's why I, I removed it. But it's 10 indicators. And um, so what, what can you tell me from here? What can you find? What, what differences can you spot between the two estimations? The standard errors are larger in the two stages, right? Any other uh, observation or besides that one? That's one the most important one, but another observation maybe? Um, yeah, it is. It is in, in all cases, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the point estimate, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, very interesting. Okay. Actually, not, even though this is how it turned out, and that's why I thought, wow, unless I did something wrong, this is really interesting, it doesn't have to be that way, though. Well, first, the, the point estimates, they could differ, because remember that here, for instance, we are including sampling weights. So the observations enter with different weight. Oh, and there are also the strata and the clusters play, kicking in. But usually, I mean, in most empirical applications, people who have error, for instance, run a regression uh, with a sim assuming a simple random design and then actually telling strata, hey, wait a second, it's a complex survey. These are the details. Now run survey, colon, regress. I don't know if anybody of you ever did that. If you compare the beta estimates, also they are not the same, okay? Because they, they, they are usually very close. But the other important point is that in some cases, but I don't think this happens all the time, but it, it can be very common though, you may have, for instance, if you thought this was a simple random sampling or you treated it as a simple random sampling because you were too tired at night, you may actually underestimate, sorry, overestimate the, you overestimate the precision of your estimates. You see? And that's a big deal. I mean, well, I don't know how much of a big deal it is, but in, in some extreme cases, and, and there, are, there was one paper that I gave you in the references, the, the statistician who does this exercise in a more interesting uh, way, he shows how even some tests of differences in means across European countries actually change significance when the standard errors are computed differently. So you thought, oh, the mean in France is statistically significantly different from the mean in Germany. And then when you computed with the actual standard error and, and the standard error blew up and the, and, the, and the Z or the T statistic went down, then the significance in quote unquote disappears. So it, it, tells, it affects the way you do inference and it may lead to a systematically uh, either, um, well in this case it would be, um, you will be harsher on the null hypothesis for instance. You will be more prone to reject the null hypothesis Right, more than more than the typical size of your test, beyond even when it's true, you know. So you it will not be properly bounded in, in the statistical jargon, but for different reasons than than a bad test design. Anyway, but the message to, to take from here simply is that it's not trivial to ignore the details of the sample design. It's not trivial. It can have non-trivial consequences. And look, I did this yesterday. I didn't know what I would get, to be honest. But I, I knew that there are cases in which uh, the standard errors go up when you uh, account for the design, and it happened exactly that. So you see, you, there you go. And, and, it's, and it's usually like, on average, they're like six times higher, the standard errors, huh? Okay? Okay, so let's just finish. <coughs> Most of this analysis, even though it also applies to what is called the finite population approach, it was actually uh, done doing a, what is called a superpopulation approach, okay? 
And as I told you, one of the differences between the two approaches is that in the superpopulation approach, in a sense, even when you have a census of the whole population, you still treat it as a sample. Okay? And it, has a lot of, it makes a lot of assumptions like, uh, about the theoretical distribution from which the uh, observations are coming, like independently distributed or identically distributed, right? Some of these assumptions are really not tenable when you have su uh, survey, uh, complex surveys because observations may not be independent. For instance, if you have two households in the same cluster, the probability of being selected or, you know, or other, other features may be um, dependent. Okay, um, but there is an alternative called finite population approach. Well, this is a quote from Deaton, but let's not, uh, I mean, we can skip it. Okay, and the interesting thing is that even though the two approaches have different assumptions, in the end, you will find that most of the formulas are pretty much the same. Even when, when the finite population approach asks you to do e e e extra changes or extra adjustments to the formulas, in practice, unless you have the census or a huge data set in practice, there won't be much of a difference. Because this is a typical adjustment that the finite population approach asks you, which by the way, Stata, in the command that I mentioned, Stata tells you where to put it, huh? where to do it, which is usually um, the variance of the sample average, like the H, has to be multiplied by this one minus lambda F, where F is the ratio between the population to, uh, sorry, the sample, sorry, n, n is the sample to the population, which is calligraphic n, right? Which, this means that we need to know the population, by the way. With the, with the superpopulation approach, we don't need that. We just use the sample and that's it. Because the population in itself is a sample from a multiverse approach to life, if you want, a multiverse, you know? You resample the planet, you know? But um, in the finite population approach, you have to know the population, which usually you do from a census, right? And then lambda is equal to 1 if the sampling is without replacement or 0 otherwise, okay? Um, so you have surveys, you know, usually it's without replacement, but uh, household surveys. But basically, you understand the concept of sampling with replacement or without replacement, right? That if, you, if you throw the household again to the pot, and how there's a likelihood that you could sample the, the household twice. Um, I have to admit that I'm, I'm not sure about uh, many surveys in which the sampling was with replacement and a household came out twice. It could be, but I, <laughs> I, I am not m much aware. Of course, when you do bootstrapping, that's what you're doing all the time. When you bootstrap, you resample from the sample, and obviously you're going to have more than one. So, so like m many households will be repeated, and that's why the bootstrap produces different estimates, otherwise it couldn't, right? Um, right? Yeah, yeah, if it's the same sample size, which is the most efficient way of doing bootstrap, yes. But that's bootstrap. Here I'm talking about sampling for your survey, not bootstrap. Uh, generating the, the sample for your survey. Okay, so usually most samplings are without replacement, so this would mean that you would actually have, if you were following this approach, you would have to, um, you have to uh, adjust the variance by that, multiply that by, by this adjustment factor. But the point that I'm making is that in real life, this is very small, very small. I don't know, um, for instance, the, the Indian famous survey, the NSS. I don't know if you ever worked with the NSS, some of you maybe, yes? How many observations has the latest NSS? How many cases? Uh, in the 61st round, it 
and, and there are positions. So this is something more important for those who ever want to publish papers in which the empirical part is important and, and you may want to check in the journal in the board of the potential uh, editors to see whether, <laughs> if you know the, what their position is. But this is just for a very academic, you know. For, for most cases, if, if you have to produce this for, for a government, for, for consultancy, uh, most people either will not really know what's going on behind, or, or if they do, they, would, they should be happy with either approach. I mean, there are, of course, there are advantages and disadvantages to each, um, okay? But um, as I said, the resampling methods are very useful when the derivation is too cumbersome, or if you are very used to programming resamplings, you know, um, or, or you know better how to control, you know, the resampling techniques that you prefer, and that's your thing, then of course, um, that's what, what you could do. Um, I, I, gave, I, I put here a few, two references, but there are many more actually. I mean, these are two that I found that I, I personally like because they explain some bits well, but there are many more uh, of these methods. Uh, I think Deaton also talks about them. And the good thing is that today, an advantage that analytical methods used to have, used to have, with, with respect to bootstrapping methods was that uh, a computing power for bootstrapping. But that's not an excuse anymore. Today, you can bootstrap a lot of, I mean, I've done it myself. Um, you go home, you leave the computer going, and you have thousands of replications, resamplings, and so forth. OK, um, unless there are any questions, I think that's it.